This is the Real Estate Addicts Podcast, episode 40, with your hosts, Dan Rubin, HRV Homes. Ray Herto, HRV Homes. Mark Savatsky, Choose Boston. And joining us today is... Anne Earhart of Boston Urban Partners and Boston Urban Places. Awesome. Welcome, Anne. Thanks for having First me. First podcast. First podcast. I was in the neighborhood. Nice. Yeah, you live right down the street. Uh, I think studio. it was like 37 seconds on Google Maps. So. You have an easy commute home. Exactly. <laughs> I know it's raining. Surge pricing will be in effect. Surge pricing is in effect. I don't think an Uber would even take me that far. <laughs> that would be funny if you actually Maybe, Yeah, that's right. I have that experience. I live like right next to the airport. And when I get in an Uber, the taxi drivers are always so infuriated with me. They're like, they've waited in this whole long line to get like a $7 fare. <laughs> have you ever done Uber Eats from a place that's like three blocks down the road? No, oh, yeah. Dan. I have legs. I walk. <laughs> I, I have a baby. I have definitely done that. See? <laughs> exactly. Oh, God. What an elitist. <laughs> not, not you, Anne. We just met. I'm talking to Dan. I'm sorry. I, I mean, elitist would be a yeah. nice word. I just think of it as tired and helpless. But <laughs> I like, elitist is better. Yeah. I don't have kids, so I can't, you know. Any- <laughs> so you should walk. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> sorry. So, Anne, let's, let's, let's kick get it off. To yeah. It. Yeah. All righty. Can you tell us a little more about Boston Urban Partners? We know you guys are an independently owned firm and you compete with some of the big boys in the space, CBRE and, and the like. So I'll leave, I'll leave it to you. Yeah, so Boston Urban Partners is now what we're calling the Boston Urban Companies, which consists of Boston Urban Partners and a newer entity called Boston Urban Places. So Boston Urban Partners is probably the brand um, that folks are going to be more familiar with, retail, real estate, brokerage firm. So we focus on high-profile retail and restaurant leasing um, and some ancillary investment sales, but leasing um, is the the biggest biggest piece of it. And that's a firm that we started in 2010. So coming up on our uh, decade anniversary here, which is kind Congrats. of exciting. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, we're we're really pumped about it. Most of our work in that firm falls into two main buckets, um, and we represent landlords and tenants. Sort of side note, but most of our work falls into two main buckets, which is sort of high-end, high-street retail leasing, Newberry Street, Harvard Square, Downtown Crossing. And the other piece of it, which is kind of how we came upon this Boston Urban Places or BU Places entity, is helping groups figure out how to merchandise the street level of mixed-use real estate assets. So that can be a um, ground-up resi development that's going to have 250, 300 residential units and got to figure out the best way to program the street level, um, what are the best amenities, or we're doing some work right now repositioning the street level of some big office towers downtown. And, um, you know, it's kind of interesting about that work is that it doesn't always end up being that the goal there is to get the highest rent for the retail space. Sometimes it's figuring out who's a user we can make in, get, bring in that are going to make people pay an extra buck a square foot upstairs, an extra buck a square foot and rent across a million square foot office space. You know, that's... That's real. That's real yeah. though. You know, yeah, now, you're, yeah. now you're cooking with gas. So the Boston Urban Places, uh, and I should note my partner in Boston Urban Partners is a gentleman, you can call him a gentleman, named <laughs> uh, Jonathan Dutch, who we've, we've been partners since 2010. He's, he's fantastic. So the two of you founded that company? Yes, the two Excellent. of us are that company in 2010. And then... This are you guys having a big party for the 10-year anniversary? You know, we should. We should be invited to. <laughs> just, just saying. 
Mark just, Mark just invited himself. All right, so Mark just wants to go to parties. I do that a lot. So we've got three attendees so yes. far. Has the death of retail been overstated? Yes, absolutely. Tell us more. Okay, so the death of retail, so I don't do obviously a ton of resi work, but I think where people go wrong with retail is thinking about retail as this blanket thing. So if one sector of retail is underperforming, it's this idea that all of retail is underperforming. Whereas, you know, in, in the residential world, you can, I'm sure every day you have one sector that's hot, some market or some sector in the country that's not as hot and people don't run around and say, oh, residential real estate is dying. It's definitely changing. In, in our world, it's always like, I feel like it's the the big luxury units. Oh, you, Mark, you can't build any more $3 million units. They're just sitting stale. Everyone needs to build 400 square foot studios. And then the next day it's back to like, no, 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 no. We really have a low, we, we, we need three bedrooms in the market. You have to stop building. So. Exactly. Your, yeah. So it's kind of, it's, it's always, it's always changing. It's definitely been affected by the rise of online shopping and e-commerce. There's no doubt about that. The reason that I stay in this industry and I I love it and I really believe in it. So I should probably throw that out there that I'm like big time drinking the Kool-Aid on, on retail. <laughs> it sort of is like since the beginning of civilization, people have had to have a place to go exchange goods and services. And also it's sort of this idea of retail kind of serves that third place, right? Where it's not work. And it's not quite home. It's kind of this other place that you can go and you can be. And it's a really, really important part of the community. And what exactly that is, I think, is what's changing. But but I, I definitely think that the retail apocalypse, I'm speaking on a panel in a couple of weeks where I think the title is Retail Apocalypse. And yeah. my piece of that will be that it, it, it may not actually be an apocalypse after so are all. there certain industries within the retail space that you feel are dying versus others, you know, my, in my personal sense, I see like the big box stores, like the Best Buys, et cetera, you know, they're the ones that are potentially going to be in trouble, but the smaller, almost like boutique type, you know, retail stores are popping up everywhere, I feel. And even a lot of online retailers are now opening up brick and mortar stores. So, you know, consumers can come in and like touch and feel their product, like all birds just opened up on Newberry Street and stuff like that. So, you know, I feel that there there is definitely a change, but are there any specific sectors that you feel are are more hot than others? Yeah, absolutely. So I think you hit the nail on the head with the word experience. That is kind of the name of the game in retail right now. And that's been the name of the game for a few years right now. Um, you know, I look at the Amazon boxes that show up to my house every day and all the things that I don't need or want to go to a store and buy. So if I'm going to go out and I'm going to go to a store, I'm going to go out and spend money. What am I looking for? It's the experience. It's the experience of a great restaurant. You know, that's why I think you're seeing a lot of food and beverage and entertainment activity is that's an experience you can't have at home. You know, when you want to go out, you want to go out with some friends, you got to have a place to do that. And these sort of smaller boutique stores popping up and especially the clicks to bricks movement, some of these digitally native brands that we're seeing look to come into the market is it's really a way to, A, you know, the modern customer is, they're online, they're out and about. You, It's a way to sort of hit them at every point. You're hitting them on their online presence, but you're hitting them physically too. 
And it's the ability, I think, to sort of um, promote your brand in a way that you might not be able to. You know, I can go online and I can buy a pair of shoes from Allbirds and I'll love them. They're great. But if I walk into their store, you really get the sense of like what the whole Allbirds lifestyle is about. You know, the music, the way they've built out the store, you can kind of like get your customer really thinking and telling and learning your story in a way that you can't online. Should we get all birds to sponsor this podcast? That would be great. I think <laughs> you guys all just want free shoes. All, two of three of us are wearing all birds. Yeah. There you go. So can we talk a little about restaurants? You guys do a lot of lease up for restaurant spaces. I'm involved in a board and we fit out this large um, restaurant space. And we finished the building. We delivered this vanilla box. And our, we then engaged a restaurant uh, broker to lease it for us. And the feedback came coming through was sort of like one mistake after the next. There was a number of things that we, I wish we had the foresight and spoke to an expert like yourself at the outset. Can, can you tell us about what those big mistakes are and what things people should be thinking of when they're delivering a like generic restaurant space for an un, yet to be named uh, restaurant tenant? Yeah, that's that's such a great question. First of all, you know, I've listened to enough of your podcasts with developers coming on to know that developing in Boston is no easy feat. And so anybody that's able to develop real estate in the city of Boston, I, I see that as sort of like best in class. <laughs> so I'm not going to come on here and say, oh, these people make all these mistakes because it's it's a hard job and, you know, hats off to everybody that that does it. We appreciate that. We're used to getting. <laughs> Never mind. Yeah, I, I know developer yeah, is. <laughs> I know developer is is not the most loved word. I tell these people days. I'm a builder. <laughs> I find I get a better response. <laughs> Fair enough. So, well, I'm not going to come on here and say, "Oh, these people make all these mistakes," because you know, these people are 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 best in class. They're they're making our city the great place that it is to live. I think where people run in to issues with their retail space, it's a couple things. One, it's a time factor. So aforementioned, difficult to be a developer or builder in the city of Boston. So if your focus is getting a couple hundred units of resi out of the ground, your focus needs to be making sure on you, you build that building and you turn it over on time. And so sometimes just by sheer function of manpower and hours in the day, the retail kind of becomes an afterthought. We engage some, you know, we got the building built, we got the building delivered, and we engage somebody when we had time. And where I think the process could be run a little bit better, which is why we started this BU Places service that I mentioned, and, and we went and partnered in that firm, my partner Jonathan and, and I went and partnered with a gentleman named Dennis Ferrandici. Dennis has been an architect in the city for over 20 years. And the reason that we put leasing and design under one roof is to be able to get involved before the leasing starts and start answering some of those really important questions that need to be answered before you may have a quote unquote broker at the table. And so the key to doing Good retail is really designing for your audience. So sometimes it's easy to your programming. How many units can I get on a floor? Are they two beds? Are they three beds? This, that, and the other thing. And sometimes the retail ends up being 
whatever space you're not using on the street level. Mm-hmm. You know, whether mm-hmm. it's your mailroom or your fancy dog wash or whatever it is, whatever is left over becomes retail. And there's not a lot of thought always put into who's going to be the end user. And so what we're doing with our new BU Places entity is kind of doing the whole process in reverse. So, okay, the city, either you want to have retail or the city's making you have retail. Who are the users that should be going in there? I think there's also um, been a little bit of over-restauranting in the city. Mm. And a lot of times, you know, we see so much time and money wasted trying to jam a restaurant deal in a space that maybe didn't need to be a restaurant. You know, what else would it be? Um, so here's an example. Okay, so you're gonna, um, you've got a, a building you're bringing online and it has retail space and you're like, oh, we've got retail space. That should be a restaurant. That's 5,000 square feet. It's a restaurant. You don't really think much more about it. Maybe you call around, you get some comps. Okay, great. And I think what a lot of times people fail to think about is, is that a neighborhood that needs a 5,000 square foot restaurant? It may not be. There may not be enough people there today to need that big of a space. And so um, if it's not a restaurant, it it could be a couple smaller spaces. It could be a bakery. It could be a coffee shop. It could be a fitness. It could be any number of things. You know, look around the great neighborhoods in Boston and look at what's on the street level in terms of retail and services. It's everything you need to make someone want to live there. That I live here because... I don't have to go outside my neighborhood to get groceries or go to the pharmacy or the ATM or get a good cup of coffee and all of those things. And so, you know, what we're really focused on doing is starting the process with who do we think is the right user to come in here and then being able to answer all those questions of how much space do they need? Should we look at being able to subdivide these spaces what kind of electric load do you need? Is this somebody that needs access to a loading dock? Do they need black iron to be able to do a full kitchen? Should we do two black iron shafts in here because it's a lot cheaper to put it in now than it is to go back and try to value engineer it in in later? It really is about taking the time up front and just like you have if you're doing resi, you know, you've got an expert in the resi world at the table, having a retail expert at the table as early as you can so that you know what you're building for. So I guess the question that I would have, and Dan and I are kind of going through this now, we did a, a, a rehab of a commercial property, but we don't know who the tenants would be. Mm-hmm. And so rather than putting money into something that might end up getting ripped out later, mm-hmm. we left it more of a blank plate. Is that a bad idea? No, that's actually a fantastic Just basically leave it completely idea. open. You just have the beams there and, and you basically say, here's what it could look like 100% quote unquote open. Yep. I think it's do not spend the money building out for someone because you think they might want right. it. Carry the budget to vanilla box it mm-hmm. for them. Carry the money to give them TI, have a landlord work letter sure, that says, sure. here's how we'll deliver the space to you. And I would never recommend sort of, well, not never. For, <laughs> for the most part, I would not recommend doing the work. The only caveat would be is that if you are in a market or a sub-market where the retail isn't a lot of sophisticated retailers, maybe they're more sort of mom and pop organizations that maybe where the neighborhood is today, you're not going to 
get a James Beard nominated chef to open a restaurant there. Sure. You know, you may be dealing with somebody who is opening a store for the first time sure. or wants to open up a store, but their first store, the second store, but their first store that they opened, they inherited it. And mm-hmm. all they had to go in was, you know, paint and bring in some new fixtures. So the, the only time you may want to do the work is if if you say, listen, we just need to get this vanilla box. We can get somebody in here for a year or two while the market grows up around us. But I would say 90% of the time you're smart to not not do the work, but carry the budget for it. How about in terms of even though you leave, say you leave the space, quote unquote, raw or mm-hmm. open, what about consideration for or having the preparation of utilities and loads? Because a a traditional retail, in my mind, is, you know, a storefront right. versus a restaurant, which is going to have crazy HVAC, the HVAC and capacity. Yeah, utility needs. And whether it's a different type of tenant that has a different higher electrical demand, whatever it might be. Do you recommend that we build it out with those in place since that's usually part of the main construction phase where it's available? Yeah, I mean, call that the infrastructure, right? right. Like the stub outs for bathrooms. Don't forget that. You're yeah, not going to deliver it. You're never going to know where that would be, it's, though. It's, yeah. That's why it's beneficial to yeah. bring them in early enough during oh, or totally. pre-construction. Yeah, I mean, but you never the back know. back of house space, the storage yeah. requirements. You mentioned loading dock mm-hmm. earlier. Like, these are all things that still kind of sting because in this space that I was associated with sort of got to the end of the road and they were like, wait, we need to have, take deliveries. <laughs> also, our trash goes out this many times. We generate this much trash. It's yeah. not just on Wednesdays and picked up by the city. <laughs> all three of you had very excellent, excellent points. Ray, do you mind repeating what the question is? <laughs> oh, essentially. So I, I think we all were in agreement that yep. we should be, should we be building out our infrastructure, mainly our utilities, to assume okay. the highest potential needs? Yes. So it's twofold. A, in terms of utilities to the space, the goal would be that you deliver stubbed to the space what a tenant needs so that they don't need to go outside their four walls for any utilities. You know, you're delivering a new office building or a high-end residential building. You don't want some retail tenant going in and screwing up service upstairs because they had to go outside their four walls. So the goal is have everything stubbed to the space. Don't start distributing it because that's what TI dollars will cover because you can't start distributing it without knowing what their plans are and and what they're going to do. In terms of how do I know if I'm delivering capacity for a restaurant or how do I know if I'm delivering capacity for just a retailer or a storefront, that really is where you want to engage somebody early on to get an understanding of what kind of a market is this? Or it may be a question that you can answer yourselves. And how I would go about recommending you answer that question is to say restaurants, as it sounds like you have a little bit of experience or a little bit of know-how, are really expensive, right? The um, Maybe you haven't built one or you know maybe you've built enough to never want to build one again, which would be <laughs> totally fair, by the way. So they're expensive. And so that's, I think I was saying mm-hmm. to Mark, do you really need a restaurant here? And so if you have, depends on, sometimes it depends on the density upstairs, right? If you've got a couple hundred units upstairs or you're delivering half a million square feet of office space or lab space, you may say, you know what? I, I really do need a great restaurant here because the office tenants, 
that are looking at my building are also looking at all of these other buildings and all of those buildings have great retail. So in order for me to be competitive, I need to be able to offer that. And maybe it's a little bit of a loss leader for me. The retail on its own won't make any money or won't make a ton of money. And for what it does for the value upstairs, totally worth the bang for my buck to program a restaurant here. If you're building a building that has five or 10 units upstairs, it may not be the best the best use of your time unless it's a market where restaurants are really clamoring to be and they'll pay you enough rent to offset the improvement costs you have to put in. So it's kind of looking at it as if I, if I do a restaurant, will I, if I put in all the infrastructure that I need to have a restaurant here, how do I get my return? So you mentioned at the beginning, Anne, that your firm tries to place, obviously, tenants mm-hmm. uh, as well. Yep. Are you able to share with us kind of how you how you do that and how you find your tenants or how you find the spaces that you think would be a good spot for tenants? Yeah. So you're saying if a tenant comes to us and says, I want to roll out in the Boston market, can you help me? Sure. How we find the tenants at, at this point is pretty word of mouth. A lot of referral business just from other folks we've talked to or, you know, the, the person that we worked on this help them roll out stores. They're now working for a new company and they and they call us. So that and that's more of an opportunistic thing. The tenant business is, you know, if we're gonna take on tenant work, we make sure it's it's something that um owners in the city are going to be really excited to have. I probably shouldn't say this, but it's a frustrating experience to be out representing a tenant that building owners aren't excited about. It's <laughs> sort of a well, you're negotiating for them and right. So maybe uh, that leads into yeah. the next part of uh, TI, tenant improvements. Yeah. I mean, can you help us navigate that process as a as a, as an owner of a building? Sure. You know, what should we expect and how that kind of works at a high level? Yeah. So one, do you want me to go back and answer how we sort of do the process? Yeah, of, yeah. Um, I, I like to just pile the questions okay. on. Yeah. All right. So, <laughs> all right. So seeping through the pile of questions. So the first question is the tenant comes to you, they want to open in the city. How do you go about finding spaces. Again, retail, wherever you are in the retail cycle, you're a broker, you're a retailer, wherever, it's all about knowing who your audience is. So if somebody comes to us and they say, you know, either we want to burn the Boston market now, we want to open a store, or we don't know the Boston market at all, but, you know, our higher ups have said, we need a retail presence here. The first thing we really want to understand is who your demographic is. You know, who do you need to be coming, finding you and coming into your store in order for you to make money and be successful? And then sort of work backwards from there to say, okay, you know, this might be a good neighborhood to focus on, or these would be the top three neighborhoods to focus on because this is where your demographic is. You know, this is where your customer is. You know, this is where your people will find you. And then sort of within that, neighborhood or sub-market drill into, okay, these are the five or five spaces that are available today. Let's go take a look at them and then we'll go make a deal. And, um, and, kind of sorry, and then those four or five spaces, how are you finding those vacant spaces? They're not on MLS, right? It's no, not just they're as simple not. as like a filtered search. <laughs> no, no. D- okay. it's a Craigslist. very <laughs> retail more than, than office, more Craigslist. than anything. <laughs> you're a creep. You're a creep. 
What? <laughs> they have commercial spaces. You will not see a Boston Urban Partners listing on Craigslist. <laughs> Period. Full well, stop. I thought we were talking about you're finding the spaces. Yeah, that's where you find the deals. <laughs> Retail is such, still such a word of mouth Interesting. thing. So you guys probably have seen advertisements for CoStar or yeah. LoopNet. Yeah. Sure. Um, that's probably the closest thing we have to MLS. We track it all in-house mm-hmm. proprietarily, and that's what I think most of our main competitors do. Um, so how we go about finding the spaces is, A, sort of seeing what's on the market. So we call our retail broker friends and say, hey, we're out with this tenant. What do you have? You know, we're on your website and we say you have X, Y, and Z. And then the other piece of it, and this is where I think retailers get a lot of value of working with a group that is more local, is we... We know all the building owners so well that we're really good at finding the off-market opportunities, which I know is, is sort of a big thing in the resi world yeah. too. You know, you want to work with sure. the agent that gets the site before it comes on the market. It's almost analogous to like how residential real estate used to be before the advent of the internet. Where yeah. realtors like literally had to call each other, be like, Ray, what do you have? I got a yeah. buyer with this. Yeah. And then you call Dan and then circle back. Now it's all Zillow and Redfin and... Yep. Or you, you wait know. till those gigantic binders come out. Yeah, <laughs> back in the day. So, but but it seems like your sector of the industry has really kind of held on to that. Still a little wild, wild west and, and do you think it'll ever change? I think it will. There are a lot of people spending a lot of money in, in tech right now to, yeah. to be... The Zillow. So, somebody the, will figure out how to be the Zillow or the MLS. Or just a data of aggregator of... The clearinghouse. Of commercial real estate. Yeah, I mean, we joke around we should go hire a coder and figure out how to do it ourselves. But then we go back to our day jobs and it doesn't happen. But it's a good idea. I I still find that bizarre though, that things would still be kept in-house and not shared because I mean, even a co-broke is better than nothing, right? There, it's not, I don't know that it's so much the co-broke because a good portion of our deals are are co-broked and and we certainly don't steer deals away from from having a co-broke. Retail has so far as I've seen, the least amount of transparency of any of the disciplines. And what I mean by that is not even space available, but finding comps. So mm. MLS, you want to, I could log into MLS right now and you could log into MLS right now and we would know we'd have the same information for what all the buildings around here sold. And same with office, that information is pretty publicly shared retail. It's just not. So whenever a, a building is for sale in the market, if it's a tower that has retail or it's a retail building, you know, we're, we get calls all the time, you know, what are the comps? What's the retail <laughs> worth? And it, it's, and, and I think someday it probably will change. And in the meantime, um, information is, is power is like, very, very potent in the retail world because everybody is not working with the same information. Do you like it that, do you like how it is or do you wish there was more? I love, I, I, I like yeah. slash love <laughs> how it is yeah. because, you know, we've been, you know, we've had our company for 10 years and obviously we we didn't just walk into the business and start a company. You know, we'd, we'd been at it before that. And and so having that amount of information yeah. and relationships helps yeah. us. Um, and you know, someday if it changes, um, you know, that would be fine. Yeah, just adjust. Yeah. I mean, we, we've, we have adjusted quite a bit in the 10 years that we've owned our business as the economy has changed, as retail has changed. Um, you know, I think if you're doing 
And it's good for me. I get bored really easily. Mm-hmm. But if you're doing retail, you sort of have to be committed to be being nimble. You know, that this is the trend today mm-hmm. and the trend could be something different tomorrow. But if you believe in retail and if you believe in why retail needs to exist, you'll you'll kind of figure out what it should be. So you have, you've ridden through a downturn or a down market. So talk to us about the current cycle. You know, obviously Resi is, is crazy, but yep. you know, where is retail at in terms of, is, is, does retail trend the same as residential? I would almost argue that retail is a little bit of a foreshadower. Um, the Resi market is red hot. The office market is red hot right now you know, there is more sort of activity happening happening in the office sector than a lot in the retail sector. I think where retail is right now is like very, depends very granularly on where your asset with retail is located. So there's a ton of development in the city of Boston last, last cycle. There's neighborhoods that that didn't even exist or nobody paid attention to 10 years ago. Seaport, North Station, Fenway, the Ink Block neighborhood. I know you guys had Ted Tai on a, a couple episodes ago. And, and so some neighborhoods where retail has been built, there was such a pent-up demand for retail that it was really successful. There have been other neighborhoods where I think there was more retail developed in this cycle than was necessary. And that's where you're starting to see a little bit of the hurt is, you know, you have a market that maybe only needed X amount of retail. And I think part of the reason this happened is that it's kind of flipped somewhere in the last few years where retail used to be the most valuable space. You know, retail were the highest rents. So you wanted to have as much retail space as possible because that's where the highest rents are. That's what you want to get. And somewhere that started to shift where now office rents in some places have surpassed retail rents. And so there are certain areas where maybe with all of the best intentions for creating a great neighborhood, et cetera, et cetera, more retail was built than there was demand for. And that's where you're starting to see a softening. See a lot of vacancies right now in Harvard Square, so it's a very popular square. Newberry uh, Street as well. Yeah, and, and and there's a common critique that maybe government local governments aren't doing enough to combat those vacancies, and 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 there's some people who would, uh, you know, allege that the landlords are greedy and they're waiting for this um, unicorn tenant to come through who is a national brand with you know very deep pockets, and so we should penalize those those landlords who are just holding it vacant year after year for business losses, et cetera. Is, is that a true story or is that just a narrative that uh, is, is easy for people to latch on to? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And I think that plays into another topic that maybe we wanted to cover is should local governments be penalizing owners mm-hmm. that have empty the, storefronts or long-term mm-hmm. empty storefronts? And I think that that would be done with the best of intentions for keeping our beloved squares and main streets healthy and thriving. And I don't know that that is the mechanism that's going to get local governments or the the people that are making these recommendations to local governments. I don't know that that's going to get them the result that they want. So for example, Washington Street and Downtown Crossing. There's mm-hmm. a good amount of retail vacancy there as well. So if you look at the landscape there, 
it's a lot of fragmented ownership. You know, if, if you own a, a mall, um, it's a little bit different. You have control mm-hmm. over all of the merchandising. But if you look at Harvard Square or a little bit Newberry Street or maybe Downtown Crossing, is it's it's a lot of fragmented ownership. And the bulk of the value in those buildings comes from the retail. So a bunch of different people have paid a lot of money to own this real estate. And the business case for that acquisition really lives and dies in the retail. And maybe there's some ancillary office mm-hmm. or maybe a couple of apartments upstairs, but hitting the, the numbers that they underwrote on the retail is critical. Now, say somebody, say one landlord owned all of Harvard Square. Mm-hmm. You could say, okay, because I own this whole thing, I could do a couple loss leader deals. I could go out and make a deal with, this is a bad example because I'm already there, but I could go out and make a deal with Patagonia mm-hmm. for really cheap rent because I know that if Patagonia comes, all of these other tenants will come. When you have- My wife would be really happy. <laughs> Wears tons of Patagucci. Nice. <laughs> when you have fragmented ownership like that, no group is going to step up and say, hey guys, I'll do the loss leader. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll yeah. take, I'll put my building underwater to get more uses here. So it's it's not like people are not doing deals because they're greedy or they want the street or they want the square to not thrive. It's that without sort of one unique focus for merchandising, it's it's hard to sort of create this sense of place when if everybody's chasing rents and there's no real holistic merchandising vision, yeah. then you're all just kind of hoping that that a tenant with a lot of money comes along. I wish Ed Glazer were here with us right now to respond. I feel like this is a, a game theory, like a very economics type quandary. Yes. I, so a question a going back action to problem. what you said about the loss leader. So you bring in kind of like an almost like an anchor tenant to attract other tenants. Now, wouldn't the other tenants that came in say, well, you gave him a discount or you gave them a discount. Now I want a discount as well? Not necessarily. And that's where going back to sort of the lack of transparency and information is really helpful in retail because it wouldn't wouldn't necessarily be known. And so retail is kind of like a grade school soccer game, you know, where the ball goes this way and everybody on the field goes that way <laughs> with, with no strategy, no no plays, just like, boom, herd ball, right? <laughs> so there's like a safety to it. So A, if Patagonia was there, the, that comp may or may not be public. B, if Patagonia, the, the idea would be that it, you know, use Patagonia as able, Patagonia comes there and say they're crushing it you know, they're doing, this is one of their best stores are doing huge volumes, then all of their peers are going to want to be there because it's like, oh, well, they're, they're making money there. We can make money there. And that's where, okay. And then while well, your rent is sort of based on, you know, what, what percentage of your sales can you pay in rent? And there, there you go. There's, there's your deal. Interesting. Have you guys ever leased a marijuana dispensary? We have not, but we have, um, not, not because we don't want to, or we wouldn't be open to it. Um, we've had a couple of term sheets going, but I don't think we've actually done a deal. They want to put one right down the street. Well, mm-hmm. They do. Yeah, right. It's um yeah. the the talk about representing <laughs> ten and two people around you may not <laughs> desire to live near potentially. Well, that that's part of that's one of the things that's hairy about doing those deals is the contingencies on those deals are 
huge. The the permitting is just yeah. un, unbelievable. Very vague, very yeah. Opaque. So they can they can pay you big rent. Yeah. If they get and it. but I I think that's a, a business that's going to be interesting. You know, twenty years from now, you know, we're going to be seeing marijuana commercials at the Super Bowl. I oh, firmly sure. believe, and it's and you're starting to see this a little bit already. It's going to be like selling booze. Mm-hmm. You know, you can have a marijuana store that's like the local packy oh, yeah. and it's like yeah. the, you know, 20, do they even sell? I don't even know if, what quantities they sell natural yeah. light in anymore. It's been a while, yeah. but you know, you can, or you can go to the really boutique, you Is know, natural wine light store. the same as Natty Light? Yes. Okay. I do remember that. Natty. <laughs> so instead of the Bud Light night at the commercials, we'll see some I think you'll also, thing. Oh, definitely. Yeah. CVS, Walgreens, Walking wait, Tree. Wait until you can just go to your corner uh, pharmacy yeah. and just pick up yeah. marijuana. Yeah. I, a lot of things came to mind here. Uh, two that I'd like to just quickly talk about is um, what do you think of co-working spaces? Are they helping or hurting? So co-working to date has gone more under the office umbrella. Mm-hmm. So we have not done nor have we been approached by a ton of co-working uses. That being said, um, you're probably seeing headlines of co-working spaces backfilling vacancies in malls or shopping centers. Right, right. And where I think that is a good idea is you're you're bringing a critical mass there because retail, if you're going to do brick and mortar retail, you need the foot traffic. You need people to be able to come and find you and bringing co-working there, having bodies on site all day helps that quite a bit. Okay, so for the co-working spaces, I, I just wasn't sure if, you know, obviously with WeWork being the main leader there, I wasn't sure if other places were trying to pick up. I, I've seen tons of other duplicates and, uh, you know, I wouldn't say imitators, but duplicators, uh, uh, of course, on smaller scales. So that's not, is that causing the demand for office space to, to be so hot, as you mentioned? I know enough about office to say something that will have all of my friends who are office brokers <laughs> calling you saying, oh, okay. you've got to have me come on because I got to dispel all these rumors okay. that Anne's spreading. You know, there's a lot of factors that are spreading demand for office. You know, we have so many different strong sectors that feed our economy, whether it's life sciences, healthcare, financial, you know, that's a whole, whole other episode. Um, I don't think co-working is what's making office leasing so strong. Co-working that like, as we hear from, you know, we work for a lot of owners of of big towers downtown. Co-working is more sort of this thing that you have to have almost like a bike room or a workout room, because a lot of the tenants that you're signing long-term leases with, they want the ability to shrink and grow Mm. and co-working allows them to do that. So we're going to lease 10,000 square feet or we're going to lease 100,000 square feet. And we really like the fact that you have co-working in the building because if we need to bring in some more, we get this contract, we need to bring in some more people to service that contract, we can and we can have them all in our building. And I think we'd be remiss to not also ask you, Anne, about sort of the Amazon effect, we'll call it. We all saw what happened when the HQ2 bids were made public and how some municipalities freaked out and how other people were excited because that would mean jobs and lots of new building or or occupancy rates going down, or excuse me, going up, vacancy rates going down. Is Boston, are you seeing Boston having sort of an Amazon effect? And if so, where? 
Not in terms of Amazon coming here or not coming here and opening a headquarters. It was sort of the same thing when GE announced they were coming here. I got a lot of questions. Is is GE affecting your business? And and GE... Until they took their plans back. <laughs> exactly. And Amazon, as Amazon, obviously affects my business because all the things people get on Amazon you don't necessarily need a, a brick and mortar location for them to go buy it. So that's kind of we talked about why you're seeing so many experiential type retailers. Amazon or GE in terms of a tenant coming into the market hasn't had a huge effect because you know the number of employees that they're bringing while it sounds like a huge number is not not an it's not enough people to change the critical mass in a certain location so much like GE opening in the seaport wasn't going to mean all of a sudden there needed to be 10 more restaurants in the seaport. Can I ask you a quick one? Um, This is a question I hated as a construction estimator, but in your world, what is a typical range as far as a price per square foot uh, for various, for your typical food groups or, or, or things that you're leasing up? Yeah. Well, and that is a number that is going up by the day, it feels like, Um, you know, starting with the most expensive, which is a restaurant. Mm -hmm. You know, we're hearing in this market to open up a full service restaurant. You know, we've heard as much as 500 bucks a square foot for a brewery, which is... Well, aside from the construction fit out, just like lease terms, um, price per foot for a a restaurant space, uh, downtown prime location. That is a loaded... Question. No, 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 and, and, and I'm, and I'm, no, and I'm happy to, to. I will definitely give you the answer. I, I think it. What's so interesting about valuing retail, and I think that's a really hard exercise for people that don't do it to do. One of the hardest things about valuing retail is you can have a space, and that single space may be worth one amount of money to a bank, and it may be worth one amount of money to a, a coffee shop, mm-hmm. and it may be worth one amount of money to a small spin studio. And all of those users would be interested in that space. And there may be a $50 a square foot delta among what they can all pay you. And it would all be an accurate comp, which I think is different than Resi, where if I'm going to go sell my condo Mm -hmm. and I have an attorney tour it and I have a doctor tour it, I don't care. The price is the price. But if you have retail space, it's worth something different to a whole lot of different users. and all of those are an accurate comp. And I think that's where sometimes people get in trouble valuing retail space is like, okay, we're going to have this space. We go out, we call around, what are the comps? Okay, great. Here are the comps. Here's what my space is worth. But if you've got a, a, a bank comp and you're trying to match that bank comp, but you want a restaurant, you've got mm. kind of an uphill battle. I had one question from a sure. restaurant perspective and actually from a developer and restaurant perspective. Do you see a lot more developers who are doing more of a mixed-use project selling off the residential, keeping the restaurant space, and then actually opening a restaurant themselves versus leasing to, you know, a restaurant group or someone that wants to open a restaurant? Because you kind of figure that, hey, if I'm a developer, I can build all of that cost into my initial building, and then being owning that space outright, I can... I can kind of play with the lease because obviously the m- biggest expense for a restaurant is the is the space. So and you get reservations anytime you yeah. want. <laughs> but you so know, basically I've, subsidizing I've seen developers it. Yeah. opening 
a lot of restaurants themselves in their own buildings that they're building now. And are you seeing that more or is that kind of just not a We see it sometimes and it's a great idea. I wouldn't say it's a trend. Owning restaurants is a really tough business to be in. So some, but sometimes what we will see if the developer or the owner wants to have a lot of control on what's going on downstairs is we may see instead of a traditional lease, we may see a management deal where we'll, we'll build, we the, we the landlord. Um, and we did this at the Godfrey Hotel downtown on Washington Street where we brought in the guys from Ruka. That was a management deal. Um, Can you kind of elaborate on what a management deal is? Yes, okay. absolutely. So, okay. So if we're going to do a lease, it's here's the space. Here's the tenant improvement allowance. We're going to give you X amount of money to go build it. You're going to, it's going to be a 10-year term. You're going to pay us this much money in rent and there'll be a whole other bunch of lease terms too. But those are kind of the main ones. And here it is. Here's your space. You know, pay us your rent and we'll call you in 10 years to see if you want to renew. <laughs> Hopefully. Nine and a half. Hopefully. Nine and a half. Hopefully. And that's and that's if very the, yeah, if they and don't go out of business. And that's very, yeah. very, very simplistic. But in a perfect world, that's how it works. Right. If you're gonna do a management deal, it's where you wanna have as much control as you can over what's going on. Like if somebody goes in and the concept isn't well received and you wanna have the control to say, you know, we don't we don't want this here. A management deal would be you the landlord would build it. You go out, you select the operator that you want, and they pay you a percentage of sales. And then there are different parameters built in where if, um, and every deal is so different, but if sales dip below a certain threshold, you can take the space back. You can ask them to re, um, reconcept it. It's, it's a management deal is a way to keep max control over what's happening on the street level in your you space. You see a lot of a lot of... But we don't see very many right, of them say, because it's, it's, they're tough to underwrite. Um, you know, if you go to sell the building, it, it's it's a little bit... Well, and as a restaurateur or whatever, it kind of, it's kind of a, a shin out of the stick, I feel, for mm, them, no? E, not as much as you might think because in a lease deal, say, you know, a, a kind of... And, and these are just numbers that we hear from our brethren in the construction world. You know, say a restaurant is... 600 bucks a square foot to build it out. And maybe you can get half of that or some percentage of that from the landlord. That's still a ton of money that Mm -hmm. you have to go raise yourself. So what we're seeing right now in the restaurant sector is my job these days is not so much selling somebody on the space and selling someone on the deal. It's selling someone to even open a restaurant because to build it is really expensive. Then if you want to serve booze, you have to go spend $350, $400, sometimes more, $100,000 on a liquor license. And then you have to staff the thing. And the labor market is really tight right now for a restaurant. That's so, an interesting consideration. So mm-hmm. the management deal actually is, a, I think, to a lot of people, a little bit of more the enticing. unicorn of the landlord is going to put up the cost to build it. And I come in and I run it. And it's a little, the maybe the shit end of the stick that they can take the space back if they don't like what's happening. But, you know, if you're a restaurant operator and you're running a restaurant that isn't making money, don't you want the freedom to change it up? Yeah. Too? Makes so sense. we're not seeing them a ton because they are, they are expensive for the landlord and they're a little bit brain damaging mm-hmm. to figure out a traditional lease deal is, is easier. But it, it is a, a mechanism to keep in mind if, if you want max control over what's happening in your space. Nice. 
I know, Mark, I know you want to get to overrated, underrated. Tenant improvements. Yes. Typically, the landlord, like you said, will provide an allowance, and that's typically amortized over the course of the lease. Do you typically get that, like a personal guarantee from people as well, or do you securitize it another way? Because I can see that as being a risk that, okay, the tenant moves in, I've spent 100, 100,000, 200,000, million, whatever the number million. is. And now the business fails and they close up shop. What, I'm, I'm, what do I do now with the space? Especially if it's highly customized. That, that's an excellent question. Is, is, and for a, it really depends on, on where the market is. So in an up market, you can, whatever your tenant improvement allowance is, a lot of times you can get some sort of guarantee to, you know, at least guarantee you what you've spent, whether it's a first position in a liquor license. Um, you know, if you blow out of here, you know, we take your liquor license back. So that's a couple hundred thousand dollars. They've been as high as over half a million dollars. I don't think they're there right now, but it, it fluctuates really frequently. Um, and that does two things for you as a landlord. A, it's, it's money back. And B, if you are going to lease a space that already has a liquor license, your space is more valuable because somebody doesn't have to go buy it and they don't have to go through the whole six to nine month permitting process to bring their liquor license there. And then other ways that you go about guaranteeing it is there are mechanisms um, you know, that you'll guarantee the first couple of years of rent or if it's a smaller offshoot of a larger company, you can get a guarantee from a larger company and it really is, it's all about the risk you want to take and kind of going back to what we talked a little bit earlier, how badly do you want a restaurant? Because those are all inherent risks built into it. And I think that's where it's really good to have an expert at the table that knows the scene and knows the players because it's all about picking the horse. If you pick the wrong horse, you can be really, really sunk. And if you pick the right horse, you know, we've had owners come to us and say, you know, people were so excited to rent apartments upstairs from that restaurant that we beat our pro forma by, you know, 75 cents a month in terms of rent. So it really is making sure you're you're vetting out your user, making sure that they build you what they promise. You know, just it's it's understanding. It's more of a partnership at that point. And it's really understanding who you're getting into a partnership with, like, like any partnership. Cool. Thank you. Sure. Should we get into it? Let's do it. All right. Okay. Are you familiar with the rules? I just say overrated, underrated, or medium rated. <laughs> and then kind of an explanation oh, as to okay. why you, yeah. Got a it. quick context color. Yeah, All right, yeah. I'll kick it off. Fast casual. Fast casual is probably going to be overrated soon, but not overrated yet because okay. there still is a lot of runway in the city of Boston for great. I don't, I don't think we're as saturated as. I think there's still room for great fast casual concepts to come into this market and have the market not be oversaturated. So it's like Panera, right? Is fast casual? Yeah, that that would be maybe one of those concepts that yeah could could go. Um, and <laughs> oh, that's overrated. That I would be <laughs> that th- that would be sort of like past rating, okay, maybe. Yeah. But there are so many like Tate, Life Alive, Ooh, Dig yeah. In, um, and groups that aren't even in the market yet. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't think overrated yet. How about along those lines, fast food? Fast food is overrated. Fat, fast food is is sort of also past rating. You know, the, the Burger Kings, the McDonald's, the Wendy's. I just don't think that's how people really want to eat 
anymore. I mean, when you guys go out to lunch, how often are you hitting BK? <laughs> no, no. no. I don't know remember the last time I've been to BK. My wife took me to, to buy Chloe, all vegan food. That was Oh, an my wife loves that place. A vegan chicken <laughs> parmesan. Who knew? Who knew? But that would, I think I would call that fast casual versus fast food. food. Okay. They're, they're, kind of the, they're kind of the same thing. Yeah. It's just, I think fast casual has the connotation of being a little bit nicer. How about uh, undisclosed price per foot rates? Undisclosed price per foot rates are uh, not overrated. And the so they're reason, underrated. They're underrated. They're, they're, they're perfectly acceptably rated. Perfectly <laughs> I acceptable. I have, a, I have a space, but I don't want to tell you what that is. And I, and I almost feel like maybe your answer is the same as what I'm about to say. Because you mentioned a space, depending on the user, could exactly. have different values. So you don't want to cut yourself short, potentially. Right, because if, if you have a bank approach you, um, the bank will do nothing for selling units upstairs. I'm not going to pay more money to live upstairs from a bank. I won't be upset about it, but it, you know, makes Unless no difference to me. you're a real estate me. developer, in which case that would be decidedly convenient. <laughs> Fair enough. Unless you are a real estate developer. Mm-hmm. Minus that caveat. So if, if you have a bank come to you, the, the whole reason you do a bank is because they're going to have great credit and they're going to pay you probably the most amount of money of any user in the market. But if you have a great restaurant come to you and you quote them the same rent, you may scare them off. Whereas you could make a deal with them because you know what they're going to do or, or a bakery or you know some amenity type user is what we call them. I think, and in, in, in my line of work, undisclosed rates is more the norm. You very rarely see a, a blast go out or an advertising go out with the, the rate on it. It's much more of a conversation. Super interesting. That's, that's all I got. You guys have any other glaring ones? Yeah. How about family Last dollar? <laughs> family dollar is sort of off the rating scale in this city. <laughs> it, it just, it, it isn't, um, it just isn't a use that is, that we're seeing be active in the market. I, I don't think the demographic in the Boston, Cambridge area is crying out for that. I will <laughs> you say- You see a lot of them closing. I, I will say that when- we go up to our little place in New Hampshire and we drive by Family Dollar off the exit. I do enjoy a Family Dollar <laughs> sometimes. For that's, pool where you get all your, that's where you got to get all your birthday and all the cards. Water, toys, all, all, the, all the stuff. You buy your birthday cards at Family Dollar? For, for some family members. <laughs> my, my mom always has to get On me that, cards, no. so I have to yeah. reciprocate. Yeah. This has been so Wait, much fun. Do you, would you have any more? Uh, the only other question is like second, you know, not ground floor yeah, second retail. Floor, I had that too. Second floor retail. Oh boy. That, uh, that's an oxymoron. No, just kidding. <laughs> we used to see more two-level retail leasing being done. I think in a market where there's not... If, if you're gonna do two-level retail, definitely talk to someone that understands retail to understand the market. So two-level retail is viable in the back bay where space is scarce and space is at a premium and a tenant like, um, you guys have wives, you know who anthropology is, right? Or urban outfitters. Mm -hmm. They, a tenant like urban outfitters can't find 16,000 square feet on one level in the back bay. And if they could find it, TBD if they would want to pay the rent for Mm -hmm. it. So in a market like that, the back bay, two-level retail is very viable. If you're thinking about doing two-level retail in Southie, I may recommend you think again. So appropriately rated. Appropriately rated. 
All right, good. All right, we got it. Nice. Nice. Well, and how can people find you if they're interested in talking to you about leasing services, uh, tenants, or landlords? I would say the best place would be to start with our website, www.bossurban.com. He is in boy, O, S is in Sam, U-R-B-A-N. Or you can just Google Boston Urban Partners. We pay a lot of money to an SEO <laughs> search company, so it should come right up. And if it doesn't, definitely let me know because said SEO search company may need Excellent. a phone call. <laughs> Underrated, overrated. <laughs> SEO. Underrated, actually. I, I, I do appreciate that when I type in Boston, not that I Google is awesome, but I do appreciate that when I type in Boston Urban Partners, it it comes nice. to the top. So I, I would say uh, find us on the Google. Awesome. Nice. Awesome. Well, thank you again for taking yeah, the time. Oh, thanks for having me. Enjoy talking retail. and uh, Learned a ton. Yeah, thanks yeah. everyone for Good. listening, rating, reviewing, and for sharing. See you on the so, next one. Cheers. Fantastic. Cheers.